0: So, yeah, we are finishing up, um, finishing up not only the book of Revelation here tonight, which we began, um, last, last week, but we're finishing up our series, uh, looking at the Bible from 30,000 feet. And of course, I got this idea from, uh, a friend of mine who got this idea from Pastor Skip Heidzick, who pastors Calvary Chapel Albuquerque, and, uh, we're thankful for, uh, he's done this a couple times with his church. And, and what the Bible from 30,000 feet is really all about is just really taking an aerial view of God's Word and really being able to go through it. Sunday mornings, we take our time going through God's Word verse by verse, chapter to chapter. But here for the last little while now, about a year and a half to two years now, we've been going through this aerial view where we've looked to just take, uh, a number of sort of key themes and ideas through the book of revelation here or through the whole of the bible I should say and really just kind of gain a better insight to the to this interwoven story of redemption that takes us from genesis to revelation and uh if you haven't been able to be with us the whole time well those are available on our website and so I hope you can kind of uh follow along with those that we've gone through because uh we're wrapping up here tonight and being able to have just gone through the whole of God's Word, it's just been an exciting thing. So we're going to be picking it up here in Revelation chapter 8. We got through the first seven chapters last week as we did a bit of an intro uh, to the book of Revelation. Some of the different ways to look at it. And now we're going to continue to move through. Now here's the trouble with going through the Bible from 30,000 feet is for a person like me, there's so much stuff that I want to hit on and cover, right? Especially in the book of Revelation tonight. We're going to we're gonna miss out on a lot of stuff that I'm sure you're gonna be going to go, oh, I wish you would have talked about that. Oh, I wish you would have touched on that. Listen, we just can't because we would have to be here for the next, you know, several months doing so. Now, we've gone through the book of Revelation already two times here on Sunday mornings, and so please, if you want to get more insight, there's something in a chapter you looked at and you thought, oh, I'd really love to hear that uh, explained and talked about, jump onto our website again, and you can find studies from each verse and chapter of Revelation uh, from our previous studies and get some more deeper insight into these things. But tonight, we really just want to take a, an aerial view and look at some of the key things going on um, in the book of Revelation, looking at, you know, end times things here. And that's what we want to look at here tonight. So listen, let's just, um, pray again. Ask the Lord to lead us through this time here. Lord, thank you for this opportunity just to get into your word here again tonight. And, uh, we just pray you lead us and guide us by your spirit. Just bring to mind the things that need to be talked about and just bring clarity to these things for us. Uh, just lead us in your truth. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So Revelation here, chapter 8. Now, what I want to do is, again, just sort of look at um, kind of this outline that we see in the book of Revelation. Because a lot of people look at the book of Revelation and they think, oh my goodness, this book scares me. I don't want to to get into it. This is too involved, too heady for me. This is too much. Uh, It kind of scares me. I'm just going to leave it alone. But you know, we find in Revelation 1 verse 3, chapter 1 verse 3, that there's a a blessing for all those that will take time to look at this book. It says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near." So we see this kind of built-in blessing to those that will take time to be in the book of Revelation, but there's also that built-in outline for us in Revelation 1, verse 19. And so here's what it says there. It says, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So as we go through this book of Revelation, we're following this natural outline that we see right there in verse 19. Here's what we see. John is told to write the things he's seen. The things that he's seen is Jesus Christ. The Apostle John is writing this. He's been with Jesus. But then in chapter 1, John is given a revelation. Jesus shows up to him, reveals himself, not as he once was, but as he is now, the conquering, reigning king. So John sees this very awesome vision of Jesus, this this revelation of Jesus. Then in chapters 2 to 3, he's told, write the things which are. In John's day, it was a, Age of the Church. So, chapters two and three, John is given specific word about seven churches of Asia. All right, seven churches of Asia, which which can take us through really when you look at them, and we we went through that here. You, you can kind of see this sort of depiction of of the different phases or stages of church history, right, from the early church to where we are now, right. The, the church of, of um, Laodicea, this lukewarm church, kind of complacent, apathetic. Sort of like what we see in, in a, a lot of Christians today. Not you guys. You guys are here on a Wednesday night. There's no apathy going on here. No, let me tell you. But for some, it's kind of like, you know, lukewarm. It's sort of easy kind of religion for some, but not really pressing. So, so we see these stages of, of church history. So write the things of charge, churches. Chapters 2 and 3. And then John's told, write the things which will take place after this. After what? After the churches. And then in chapter 4, John is told, come on up here. He's taken up to heaven. Where he begins to see the scene in heaven as we move into this tribulation period, which covers from chapters 4 to 19. And in those chapters, the church isn't mentioned. Until we see the church coming back with Jesus again at a second coming in chapter 19. Church is not mentioned again. What took place? The rapture. I think John being called to heaven is a picture of the rapture. And we don't see the church mentioned again. We're talking about things now that are taking place after the church, this time where God is going to be acting out this and and and, um, pouring out this judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. And it's a time where he's going to, again, be working with Israel very specifically here, calling out to them because there's that one week in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9, that seven-year period that is left undone right now, that hasn't happened, and that's going to be fulfilled during the seven-year tribulation that we see happening in Revelation so that's the outline that we looked at. We went through chapters one to seven last week as we looked at the revelation of Jesus. We saw uh, about the churches and we began to see this view, this scene happening in heaven. Chapter six to seven, we saw the beginning of the seven year tribulation unfolding where the first six seals of judgment were being released and then we were given that Parenthetical pause, right? A break in the action to fill in some more details as to what's unfolding during this time of the tribulation. And there in chapter 7, we saw how God had marked and sealed 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel, that we're going to be spared, saved, secure in Christ, and we're going to go out and be evangelists. For Christ, right? And that's the great thing, is here is a seven-year tribulation unfolding. It's a time where the judgment of God is being poured out the wrath of God for man's rebellion against him, and yet he's still providing opportunity for people to get right with him, right? Because let's face it, God could just say, it's judgment time, you're done. Out. It takes half a second for God. But he gives it seven years. Why? He's giving people an opportunity to repent and turn to him. And we'll see that as we continue on through our study here tonight. So the tribulation is marked by three sets of judgments. Three sets, the, the, and they're all seven, all right? Three sets of seven judgments. You got the seven seals, you got the seven trumpet judgments, and then you got the seven bowl judgments. And between each of these, you'll see this Parenthetical pause, giving more info and details as to what is really also unfolding and happening alongside of all these things. So notice a couple things. The seventh seal is what brings forth the next wave of judgment in the seven trumpet judgments. And then the seventh trumpet judgment is going to kind of give way and open up to the seven bowl judgments to come. And interestingly, the seven bowl judgments... And the, and the trumpet judgments are going to deal with the, the same areas here. You see a lot of parallels between uh, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments there where you see the things that are being hit and impacted there. So that's kind of a little uh, list and chart for you to kind of look at there. So we also see a wonderful thing taking place in heaven while the seventh seal is being opened. Look at Revelation 8, verse 1 to 6. Notice this here. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 to 6. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So notice these were the prayers of all the saints. Probably the saints of all time, we re, we we read in Revelation six, verse ten, the tribulation saints who were under the altar, and they were asking, "O oh Lord, how long?" Uh, or, or sorry, it says, "How long, O oh Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth?" It's essentially been a prayer of the saints throughout history, basically praying, "Lord, your kingdom come." Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this now, in, in Revelation 8, we see really the answer and the fulfillment to that prayer. Right? It reminds us that true prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's seeing God's will done on earth. And that's what's being sought after here and, and being lifted up here, these prayers before God. And every, here's the great thing, too, is that every prayer is heard by God. And every prayer is going to be answered by God. Maybe not in your timing, but it will be answered. So these first four trumpet judgments begin to unleash major catastrophic situations on the earth. In verse 7 chapter 8, burning hail destroyed a third of the earth's trees and all the grass, right? Imagine that. I mean, this doesn't go well for all the environmentalists right now. They're, They're cringing when they hear this kind of stuff happening, but... That's what's going on. Uh, chapter 8, verse Tonight, to A burning mountain-like object was thrown into the sea, turning a third of it to blood, killing off a third of its creatures and ships. A large star or meteor called Wormwood comes crashing down, making a third of the rivers, the fresh water now, poisonous, killing anybody that drinks of it. And then in verses 12 to 13, the sun, moon, and stars were partially darkened, causing a third less light than before. So we see all these things hitting the world, and just causing a lot of devastation to take place here. Now, if you think that was bad, right? I think that, uh, man, that, that is pretty severe. Look at what's in store here. Verse 13 of chapter 8. It says, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe! to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So, whoa, 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 for, you know, one woe for each of the next trumpet judgments that are to sound. And it's going to get heavy, all right? It's going to be some heavy woes because now we're not just seeing an onslaught against the earth, you know, where there's waters or trees or grass getting devoured. Now we're seeing things beginning to impact humanity Personally and, and, and physically here, judgments that directly hit mankind. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Now, this isn't a star like what we saw in chapter 8 where some celestial kind of, you know, Uh, A star falling from the sky. This star is referred to by a personal pronoun. Many believe this is speaking of Satan, who is given access now to carry out his diabolical plans here during the tribulation, right? So when he opens this pit, there's this horde of demonic scorpion-like locusts that are released and emerge upon mankind. But not all mankind. It says it's only going against those who don't have the seal of God. In other words, those that were sealed of God in chapter 7 are protected, and they're secure in Him. Do you realize that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit? And do you realize that there is a security and a protection afforded the believer that others in the world don't have? It's why I believe that a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. Some would like to say, oh, yes, he can. No, I don't believe that at all, because if the Holy Spirit is in us, Do you think he's going to allow a demon to take up residence in us as well? No way, not a chance. We're sealed and we're secure. We're protected by the Lord. Well, moving into verse 5 of chapter 9. Look at what goes on here by these demonic forces now. Verse 5. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days... Men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. So these demonic forces in some way are going to inflict and bring on such torment and agony for people that they're going to to wish to die, right? I saw a video of a, a, a person allowing himself to get stung by one of those murder hornets. You heard about those, right? I'm like, first of all, what is the matter with you? And secondly, you know, I mean, you're, you're crazy. So me get him some help here. But, uh, it was just, just writhing, just the, the pain that was coming out of this guy. It was just like, oh my goodness. It just sent shivers up my spine. But, um, think about what these are going to be like. This is going to cause people to want to die. And yet, for five months, death is going to escape them. They're not going to be able to do Anything about it here Now the sixth trumpet judgment Was another release of demonic forces This time It's four angels now Bound at the river Euphrates Right? Sixth trumpet judgment Verse 13 there But now Interesting We hear about these bound angels Does this sound familiar to you? Well it's what we talked about On Sunday in 2 Peter Chapter 2 verse 4 Where there were these angels That were bound and, and and awaiting their judgment? Could it be this is uh, what's in mind here? This is maybe what Peter was referring to? And here's these angels that are bound, but now they're going to be released, and, and they're going to be released to go ahead and, and uh, kill a third of mankind here. Look at verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. I mean, just, I don't think we can completely fathom what that's going to be like to all of a sudden... We've already seen many people killed to the the seal judgments, and now a third of mankind is just gone? I mean, I mean, it's going to be heavy duty when just the rapture takes place and there's millions of people gone. Now a third of mankind is wiped out. I mean, think about just the, the, the collateral, the fallout from the collateral damage, the you know, the difficulty that's going to come from all of that. It's it's just, it's hard to even wrap your mind around that kind of stuff from happening. So these angels are released. They're also going to be leading a 200 million person army. Look at verse 16. Now, the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 200 million person army. Now, many believe this is an actual army that's going to rise up. We're going to see an army that's, Rising up, They're going to make their way through the Euphrates River that's been dried up later on. And they're going to be coming to fight against God and against God's people. So it's pretty amazing to see this unfolding. And yet, with all this going on, we see the unfortunate stubbornness and hard-heartedness of people. Look at what we read in verse 20. Of chapter nine, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. is that amazing? I mean, here's God totally revealing his power and his might. And it's a wake-up call for many people just to repent, and yet... Here we see that there were people that were unwilling to repent. They were unwilling to turn away from their idols, their sorceries, their wickedness, their sexual immorality. They wanted to remain in those things and continue in a a lifestyle of sin rather than surrender to God. Again, it's so sad to see that happening, but it just it kind of goes to show that the, the more people resist God and continue to resist God, just the more hard their heart gets to where they're no longer listening to any kind of rational or, or thinking rationally in any way, where they have the evidence all in front of them that there's a God and he's at work right now and yet they will refuse to turn to him. Now chapters 10 to 15 give us a longer now parenthetical break we just come out of the seven the, the the trumpet judgments all right the seventh one is yet to sound but again like we've seen there's these parenthetical breaks between these judgments that begin to fill in a bit more of the details as to what's going on and we see a long one now between chapters 10 to 15 where we see a number of things that are going to be happening during the tribulation. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 10 is interesting. I mean, there's an angel coming and giving this book to John to eat up. And it's important because John's got a word to share with people. And it's important that he is internalizing God's word so that he can go and be a, a witness and share with other people. That's important for us, how we need to take in God's word if we're going to be able to give God's word out to other people. So we see that in John, or sorry, Revelation chapter 10. But chapter 11... Check this out, verse 1. Then John is given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So here's something interesting. We understand now from Revelation 11 that there's going to be a third temple that's going to be built and that's going to be standing during this tribulation period. All right? Israel is is without one now, but it's very amazing to see the push that's going forth to see a temple be reestablished there in, in Jerusalem. I mean, when you go to Jerusalem, you can visit the Temple Institute. I love going to the Temple Institute where they have, this organization has all the different furnishings for the temple. All the different... Articles that need to be in there, the 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 priestly garments. They've got all these things ready to go so that when a temple is rebuilt, it can start to be in action really quickly here, right? So they're ready. They're wanting that. And it's interesting because when he talk to Jews today and you ask them, how are you going to recognize the Messiah today? Who are you looking for exactly? And, and they'll tell you, you know, we'll know the Messiah, because he's going to lead us in the rebuilding of our temple. And isn't that so kind of fitting and, and an easy way for the Antichrist to come in and win, the, win over the, the support of Israel, win over the, the favor and the following of Israel? Because he's going to come in and lead them in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, we've got a, a an interesting situation. Let me, first of all, just... You know, look at the history of the temple real quickly. Israel's first temple, built by Solomon, on Mount Moriah in 1050 BC. Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, sacked that temple in 586 BC. The temple was then rebuilt by Zerubbabel in 536 BC. King Herod, seeking favor with the Jewish people, enlarged and expanded that temple. And then it was that temple that was standing in Jesus' day, the, the The second temple, Right? In Matthew 24, 2, Jesus said, No stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that word was fulfilled when Rome came in, sacked Jerusalem, sacked the temple in 70 A.D. So Israel is without a temple today, but we see from scripture there's a third one yet to be built. So why has the temple not been rebuilt yet? Well, there's a bit of an obstacle in the way there on the Temple Mount, an Islamic mosque called the Dome of the Rock. And that brings us quite interestingly to what we read there. In verse two, what did John? What was John told? John's told in, in Revelation eleven verse two. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. John is told to leave out this area where the Dome of the Rock sits. It's given to the Gentiles. In other words, this third temple could be built without having to take out the Dome of the Rock and risk World War Three, right? It's all possible. In fact, there on the Temple Mount, you will see this little dome called the Dome of the Spirit. It's believed in the Dome of the Spirit that that sat right over the Holy of Holies. Where? Again, God revealed himself there at the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. It's also been called the Dome of the Tablets, I believe. And now what's interesting is that there was, you know, some some writings given that said that the priest was able to walk out of the temple door and look right out at at the eastern gate. Now, when you take an aerial view of this, what's interesting is when you see where the dome of the Spirit sits, it's right in line with the eastern gate there. In other words, what we see here is that there on the temple mount, Mount Moriah, we have plenty of room to build a temple without having to touch the dome of the rock and incite a holy war. And that's why I believe John is told here, Ah, leave out. The court's been given to the Gentiles. They tremble on foot. And we'll do so for how long? Well, they're told 42 months. How long is that? That's three and a half years. It seems that this is all leading us up to the midway point of the tribulation, the time where things really begin to heat up now. Look at chapter 11, verse 3 and 6. It says this. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two, all the trees, uh, and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of the prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, Biblical prophecies based on the Old Testament calendar of 360-day years, all right? And so, we got 1260 days, which equals, again, three and a half years. It would seem these two witnesses appear around the beginning of the tribulation, and they minister throughout the first half of the tribulation, prophesying against the work of the Antichrist and warning the world that what they're encountering is the judgment of God. So the temple is built... The first three and a half years, the Antichrist is all lovey-dovey, right? But these two witnesses are there, and they're proclaiming the truth here, trying to sound that alarm again for people to wake up and understand what's going on. It lasts for three and a half years, and then we know what happens after those three and a half years, right? Well, we'll get to that in a, in a minute here. I'm going to pause right there and not get ahead of myself here because something is going to happen at that midway point that's going to kind of turn things around. We'll get to that soon. But these two witnesses, very interesting, right? Now, why, why, why two witnesses? Well, the Word of God says in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So here's two, you know, giving full credibility to the truth that they're proclaiming. And now, who are the two witnesses? There's a lot of speculation that's been given. The front runners are Moses and Elijah. We see the things that they're doing. Stopping rain, turning water to blood. That's things that Elijah did stopping the rain and Moses turning the water to blood. So many believe that's why. But we also know that Elijah and Moses were the two that stood with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Matthew 17. And so there's many that believe that's the case. There's others that some have thought it could be. Some have thought it could be Enoch along with Elijah. Those are the only two people that we know never died. They were just... Translated, taken up to heaven, right? So perhaps they're going to come back to the earth where they're going to be killed. But then we see something interesting happen here. After three and a half days of being killed with the Antichrist coming after them, they are, are resurrected again. And they are taken up to heaven where all their enemies see that happening. Could you imagine? I'd love to see their faces Right? When they see these two all of a sudden rising. Everybody's been partying. These two witnesses are killed. Suddenly, like this, this conviction has been stopped and everybody's celebrating. They're exchanging gifts with one another. They're having a merry old time. Suddenly, boom, these things start to stir again. They just rise up. I mean, could you imagine? I think, I think as these two were rising up, there were people falling down. I mean, hearts were probably stopping at that point right there, right? I mean, that would be freaky to see, but that's what unfolded. So then we come to the seventh trumpet judgment. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now I love that. Because that's essentially what God is doing. He's restoring the world back to the rightful order under his reign. Right now, Satan is the... Be known as the prince, the power of the air, the the ruler of this world. But Jesus is is claiming back all these things. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. They're his. They're rightfully his. And he's claiming them back here. I love that. Well, chapter 12 gives us now this this age-old cosmic battle that has been fought since the beginning of time. It's a battle where Satan has tried to thwart God's plan. So we see this... This woman now, in chapter 12, verse 1, who's about to give birth. Now, that's an interesting kind of picture. She's got the moon, the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, and you see that this is kind of picturing the nation of Israel. This isn't Mary, who's giving birth to Jesus. This isn't representative of the church, as some would like to say. I believe this is picturing the nation of Israel, who did indeed give birth to the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came forth out of the, the Jewish people, right? Satan knew that this child was going to come ever since Genesis 3, verse 15, where, where God said that he's going he's to crush your head, right? Satan knew that this Messiah was going to deliver the death blow, So Satan's plan has been to try to stop this Messiah from coming forward, try to thwart God's plans. If he needed to wipe out that whole entire race of people, nation, then he would do so. And he's attempted to do that. He's tried. So Revelation 12 begins to depict this kind of struggle. And Satan continues on through the tribulation to try to take out Israel and prevent God's plans from unfolding. Now we're introduced to this dragon here in verse 3. Look at this. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head, says tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This dragon is speaking of Satan. He's been on the attack of Israel. And, and, and this is what's believed to be the reference to, you know, a third of the angels. It says a third of the stars of heaven... Again, that could be speaking of, of angels. Taking a third of the angels that are now his demonic forces doing his bidding. Now, what's interesting is be, between verse 5 and verse 6, we have an interval of some 2,000 years, right? Look at verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness... Between verse 5 and 6 there is this interval of 2,000 years. Christ taken up to heaven after his resurrection. But now we're moving right ahead to, again, this scene unfolding in the tribulation period where after the three and a half years, the Antichrist reveals his true colors and goes after Israel. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 and 21, therefore, when you see the abomination desolation spoken of Daniel by, or spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let him who is on the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time no nor ever shall be. So what's happening is God Jesus gave warning to Israel and said, Listen, when you see the abomination of desolation, in other words, like we said, three and a half years of the tribulation, the Antichrist has been on the scene, he's helped Israel build the temple. Everybody's been like, This is our guy. Man, he's leading us in this great unity here among but then midway point of the tribulation the antichrist is going to go in the temple and seek to be worshiped himself and people are going to understand this guy's blasphemous he's not our guy and the antichrist is going to ramp up this attack against israel jesus warned them of it and said when he said happen flee to the wilderness and here in verse 6 of revelation 12 then the woman fled in the wilderness israel fled in the wilderness just as they were instructed to do Where she has a place prepared by God Many believe that place prepared by God Is the city of Petra Where they're going to be Held up in this great kind of Fortress like city there And be kept safe until Jesus comes back again Now until this time Satan Had access to heaven Satan's not in hell As many people think Satan wants no part of hell Hell is not his home. Satan is roaming the earth like we know, as Peter tells us. He has access to heaven just as we saw in the book of Job. But a war is going to break out in the heavens and Satan and his angels are going to be cast down to earth without access to heaven any longer. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Um, sorry, that's not the reference there. Um, oh, verse 7, yeah. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. So Satan, during the tribulation period, is no longer having access to heaven. He's going to be cast down to the earth here once and for all, where he's going to eventually meet his final demise and judgment. But look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she's nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Again, a reference to this last three and a half years. Time and times and half a time. It's a reference to this three and a half years now This latter three and a half years of the tribulation Where Israel is going to be on the run from the Antichrist And where God is going to protect and preserve them here Look at Revelation 13 Revelation 13 begins to reveal Satan's agent that he's going to use To carry out his deception And devious plot on a human level Verse 1 of chapter 13 Then I stood on the sand of the sea This is John speaking And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So this is speaking here now. This beast rising up is speaking of the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist has already come on the throne, but now again, this parenthetical kind of fill, fill-in, we're seeing the, you know, the way that this guy comes onto the scene. He emerges on the scene to come and be this world leader. It's interesting how much talk is going on right now for this need of a one-world government with a one-world leader, you know. Um, there's lots of stuff kind of emerging and in the works right now along these lines and they're looking for who's that person that's going to lead this well the bible tells us who it is it's right here in revelation 13 this beast this antichrist is going to come on the scene he's not going to come on the scene as a beast he's going to come on the scene as a very charismatic leader again he's going to cause many people to just fall for him just to just to adore this guy now, the Antichrist was introduced in Revelation 6, like I said, but he gets described more fully now as it's in the midway point of the tribulation that it really begins to reveal his true colors. Now, it's interesting that his description closely matches that of the dragon that we saw in chapter 12, verse 3. Very same description because they're in cahoots. And it's the dragon that's given, giving the authority to the beast here. So they're working, you know, kind of really one and the same. Look at verse four of chapter thirteen. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? There's just the, the praise of the of the public. Oh, who is like the beast? Who can do anything against him? Now the beast is really the final empire, the antichrist empire. The last world empire before Jesus comes back. John describes the beast as having the characteristics of all the previous World empires. The characteristics of a leopard, a bear, and a lion, as, as verse 2 tells us. Now, how do you know these animals are representing kingdoms or empires? We can go to Daniel chapter 7 and see these same animals mentioned, which spoke of those kingdoms that were to come that Daniel is prophesying of. Daniel first mentioned the lion, which pictured Babylon, then the bear which pictured the Medo-Persians who overthrew Babylon, and then the leopard was Greece who came in swiftly and overthrew the Persians, conquering the world. Interestingly, when John records these kingdoms, he reverses the order. Why so? Because Daniel was looking ahead to the coming kingdom. John now is looking back, right, on those that have come in the past here. And Satan adds one more member to complete this unholy trinity. The beast coming out of the earth. Verse 11 there, we see then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is now the false prophet who comes alongside the Antichrist to carry out this worship and adoration of the Antichrist. Religion and economics are all going to be closely linked together in this time of great apostasy and authoritarianism. Look at verse 16 of chapter 13. He causes all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666, man's number. It's interesting to see, because you would think, you know, when you read this, Years and years ago, you think, why would anybody take this mark? And yet, we just see in, I mean, recent times, how much, you know, public is kind of being set up to be very compliant to receive things that they think are going to be for their good, right? I mean, having just going through COVID-19 right now, the coronavirus, and and this real push to to get a vaccine, and and... Some of the ideas behind this vaccine now of, of implanting things in there, you know, to kind of be able to track people or have understanding of really the health of people. And people are going to buy this up to think, oh, this is for our good, right? To where now possibly, you know, where it says no one can buy or sell without having this mark. You think of like a vaccine and you think um, how stores are going to be like, you can't come in and shop here unless you can show that you've received the vaccine. We want everybody to have this vaccination to make sure you're you're okay. You're not going to pass on any kind of sickness. And to where stores could easily be shutting people out unless they can show they got a vaccination. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to be the mark of the beast. I'm just showing how we're being kind of set up and and kind of readied for this kind of technology coming in and how easily people are going to be wanting to receive this now because they think it's going to be not only for their health, but for the health of others and the safety of others as well. So it's very interesting stuff that we're seeing happening in our day and with what the Bible has said all along is going to be happening. Now listen, there's going to be those that when a vaccination comes out, whatever your view is about this, we're not going to get into what's right or wrong, but listen, nobody can take the mark of the beast without it being linked to the complete allegiance to the Antichrist. So, understand what I'm saying here. There are people today, they get so freaked out over technology or this and that, and say, that's the mark of the beast, I'm not taking that, man. Oh well, if I take that, man, I could be sealing my future or the doom of my future. There are people that get... I remember back in the 80s when, you know, debit cards came out and people were claiming, this is like the mark of the beast, man. I'm not taking a debit card. No way. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Listen, the, the, the mark of the beast is going to be linked to the devotion and the allegiance to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist isn't going to be revealed, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, until the church is taken out of the way. So you have no chance of taking the mark of the beast right now. Oh, you could take something that might be the precursor to the mark of the beast, but it's not going to be the mark of the beast for you. You understand what I'm saying here? Okay, just want to clear that up for anybody that's, you know, going home, throwing their phones out, thinking this is the mark here. Don't worry about that stuff. Um So in chapter fourteen now, moving along, we, we come upon a number of announcements that are highlighted angelic announcements that are highlighted. And again, just an, an incredible display of God's available salvation, grace, and mercy. Again, understand here that through the book of Revelation, oh yeah, it's judgment, it's heaviness. But all through the book of Revelation, God is giving an opportunity for the gospel to be sounded and for people to receive him as the Lord and Savior. Look at verse 6. Of oh, chapter fourteen, then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Could you imagine that? An angel flying overhead preaching the gospel out—that's incredible. I mean, God at this point might be thinking, "Don't bother." I mean, they're just so far; they're not going to. But He keeps giving opportunity for people to hear the gospel and to repent. That's amazing, right? So, the angel says in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and earth the sea and springs of water. Hey, let's jump over to chapter 16. Chapter 16, we see the last series of judgments. We see the bold judgments here. And it's interesting that the first judgment was loathsome sores of those that had the mark of the beast. Like, could be all related to perhaps, you know, unproven technology that's been, here, take this, this should be okay. I don't think there'll be any problems with this. And all of a sudden people are breaking out with loathsome sores. Now it's the judgment of God, we see no doubt. But uh, it seems that he's using what's being done through the mark of the beast to bring that on because all those that took the mark are now having loathsome sores, as it tells us in chapter 16, verse two. And then again in verse three, the waters were hit. The sea became blood again, but this time, all the creatures of the sea died. Remember in the trumpet judgment, it's a third of the creatures died, and now it's all creatures died. Whew. Can you imagine just a bunch of rotting fish floating? Along? Oh, my word. All creatures died. I mean, that's, that's a judgment right there, just smelling the decay of these creatures in the sea. That's enough right there to make you repent and drop on your knees there. Look at verse 5 with me here, chapter 16. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and judgments, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now, I love that we read often in Revelation that God's ways are just and true. You'll see that more than once. Just and true are your ways. You see, God does all things with justice and in righteousness. And it's what people are calling for today, isn't it? Right? Oh, we want justice. Listen, justice doesn't come apart from God. God is the only one that judges with complete righteousness and justice. Man man can't do that. Only God does. He alone comes righteously and carrying out just judgment. Well, the sixth bull there, verse 12, reveals that the Euphrates River, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be dried up by which this massive army that's conspiring together and being led by these spirits of demons are, are going to be making their way. And these kings from the east here put themselves in a position for this great battle known as the Battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl judgment is kind of the, the culmination of all these judgments. It, it meant the wrath was complete. As Jesus took the wrath of sin upon him on the cross and completed the work, he too said, it is finished. Now notice that in verse 16. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Just as Jesus echoed, it is finished on the cross. And in verse 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Incredible signs accompanied this finished work of judgment just as it did when Jesus died on the cross taking that judgment of God for our sins. See, judgment needs to be poured out. You can either receive it there, through Jesus who died on the cross to take the judgment of your sins so that you wouldn't have to pay for it. Or you unfortunately go through that judgment at another time when you're not going to be spared from those things. It says in verse 19, Now the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So the city of Babylon now There's this real focus here in Revelation. It's Satan's capital city. It's the center of false religion and this system of oppressive economical... uh, or oppressive economy, of commercialism. And it's led people down a deceptive path of spiritual fornication. Revelation 14, verse 8, said as much. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So Babylon was remembered before God. She's going to get her just due. Now Babylon was a real city, all right? Again, it was something that was very real, but throughout scripture it became synonymous with the world system, that system that is opposed to God. So chapter 17 and 18 are going to are going to detail now the fall of religious Babylon and economic Babylon, these two parts of Babylon. That's why Revelation 14.8 says, I believe Babylon has fallen, is fallen. It repeats itself because there's these two components to this world system that works in opposition to God. There's the false religious side and the oppressive commercialism side. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying to me come I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. So this false religious system was rightly called the mother of harlots because it led people away from God and into unfaithfulness, that was always that immediate thing that God was calling on his people on, walking away into idolatry, being unfaithful in their relationship to God, and Babylon has allowed people to drink of the you know drunkenness here essentially of her fornication, led people astray she 's the mother of of harlots using this false religious component to draw people away from God. Well, next up is the judgment of that false economic system. And that too lured people into this prosperity and profiting off of the people. Look at chapter 18 now. Verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So Revelation 18, verse 17, also says, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. So here we see God now pouring out this judgment and destruction upon this false Economic system And the merchants are there just weeping Everything they put their hope in Their trust in Their They poured their resources into Is all taken from them In one hour It came to nothing Isn't that sad? But what a reminder for us To be careful Of what we're living for Because It all comes to nothing Only what we have invested Into God's kingdom Into God's work Is going to have any lasting value Right? Right? Where are you storing your riches today? Jesus would say in, in Matthew six nineteen, which I don't think I have up here now. Oh, I do right here. Okay. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasures there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure today? is your treasure in the things of God, in in that eternal perspective. Because that's where your heart's going to follow after. Revelation 18 reveals to us that all of these things, apart from God, can be taken from you in a heartbeat. And then what do you stand upon? So with the destruction of Babylon, we're led into what everybody has been waiting for, the return of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 19. This is where it gets good. And after these things, verse 1, Revelation 19, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah." Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you as servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of many thundering saying, "Hallelujah! for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Listen. Many people like to look at the book of Revelation as just a doom and gloom book. But I see more so this is a book filled with praise and worship to the Lamb of God who reigns forever and ever. And here we see just a glimpse of the kind of praise that's going out, even amongst this time of judgment, right? I mean, the book of Revelation is a book filled with praise and giving glory to the Lord. I love it. And now verse 11 of chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his, na- on his robe and on his thigh a name written, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. See, Jesus came the first time as a humble servant. Came riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. He came as a lamb that was slain. That was his first coming. But at his second coming... He's going to come now as the conquering king, riding on a white horse, and he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And who are the armies of heaven? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, I believe that's us. That's just the bride of Christ, the church. Now, these don't particularly, particularly look like battle clothes, do they? But here's the great thing is, we're not going to be having to do much battling here. Notice what happens. It's that Jesus comes with a sharp sword out of his mouth, right? By which it says, he strikes the nations. With just the very word, the very word that brought the existence of the world into being. With that very word, he's no doubt able just to wipe out the enemies that he has here. And that's what's going to happen. The battle of Armageddon is not so much going to be a battle as much as it's going to be just a one-sided bloodbath as he comes with all these nations that have conspired together to, to come and form a coalition to fight against God and his people. Jesus at that second coming is going to come and set foot down and just with that spoken word, wipe out all those that are standing in opposition to him. And at this time it says, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are going to be captured and they're going to be cast alive in the lake of fire. That's the final dwelling place of unbelievers known as hell. It's what we would typically call hell. Verse 20 chapter 19 records that for us, that they're going to be captured and put in a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Again, this is not Satan's home. Hell is not occupied right now as far as the lake of fire goes. This is now the first occupants in a sense, the Antichrist and the false prophet. We're going to see later on that the dead are going to be brought back up, stand before God, and they're going to be sentenced and put in the lake of fire. Satan himself is going to be cast in the lake of fire coming up here. The final dwelling place of all the unbelievers. Now in chapter 20, what we do see about Satan is that he's going to be bound for a thousand years because once Christ comes back in the second coming, which we see in chapter 19, he comes and he establishes that reign of Christ. That kingdom of God on earth, physically where he's going to reign for a thousand years. But before he does that, he binds Satan for a thousand years. It's the time of the millennium, the thousand year reign of Christ. It's when God restores his creation and conditions are perfect on the earth again. The way that God originally intended Romans 8 records for us that, that even all the creation is groaning, awaiting its redemption. Right? Even creation knows this is not how God's created us. We're waiting for the time we're going to be redeemed. We're going to be restored. And that's going to take place during the millennial reign of Christ. Lots of passages in God's word. Give us a glimpse of the millennial kingdom. Isaiah chapter 11 is, a, is an example of that. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, right? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. So it's going to be perfect conditions. Other samples of the millennial being brought up in scriptures all there for you here. I won't go through each of them, but if you're taking notes down, you can record a couple of those. But you see, this millennium is going to be a time of enforced righteousness. You see, people who made it through the tribulation with faith in Christ are going to be brought into the millennium in their natural bodies. We are coming back with Christ after we've been in heaven with them for seven years during the tribulation. We're going to come back. We're in our glorified spiritual bodies, but there's going to be people brought in the millennium with natural bodies, with a free will. We've put off corruption and mortality. We've put on incorruption and mortality. Sin no longer an issue for us, but there'll be those that'll be brought in who will have free will, natural bodies. And, and it's going to be a time where righteousness is going to be In force. Satan is no longer active. There's no temptation trying to lure people away. Satan is going to be bound. But Satan is going to be released at the end. Look at verse 7 of chapter 20. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose numbers as the sand of the sea they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints And the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now you sit here and you think, why would you release Satan? You've got him bound, everything's perfect, why would you let him go again? Well, I think the reason for this here is because it's revealing something for us, something very true, because a lot of people say, you know what? Evil and rebellion in the world is just really a result of our environment. It's the conditions that we're we're born into. Sometimes we just don't have a choice. We just become a product of our environment. Well, listen, there's going to be the millennial reign where there's going to be... Now, think about this here. I mean, people coming in natural bodies. There's going to be reproduction. We're going to live longer. We're going to be a thousand years in. So think about the population explosion that's going to take place. Because it tells us that there's going to be those following this rebellion... Whose number is as the sand of the sea. In other words, there's so many people that fall prey to Satan's deception that they're going to go and, and rebel against God. So it's going to be an incredible population explosion, but you wonder and you think, why would God allow Satan to be released? Because it's going to reveal that the heart of the problem is the problem of man's heart. It's not a product of, you're not a product of your environment. The issue is man's heart. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. That's why to be a part of God's kingdom, Jesus said we must be born again. Because during the millennium, these people in their natural bodies are going to have an external enforced righteousness, but unless there's an internal, inward transformation that takes place, it's really all for naught. The issue is man's heart. And it's only God that can come and take man's heart and transform it by people allowing God to come in and do that. We need to be born again. We need there to be a work of the Spirit that takes place rather than us trying to put on this external reformation. It's not reforming ourselves, it's not trying to be better people or do good things, it's transformation. It takes place from the inside out. And that's the work of Jesus, the work of the Spirit. It goes beyond us. So, here come these armies. And just like the battle of Armageddon, where Jesus comes and he's just like, see you guys, it's over. They're wiped out. So too in this rebellion, in Revelation 20. Again, it says that this fire came down from God and devoured them. They're all like, oh man, look at how many there are of us. We got them now. This is it. And all of a sudden, they're toast. They're just devoured. It's done. Now, verse 11, this is where we see the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. And so what we see here is that Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Sorry. The lake of fire. So that's where the great white throne judgment is. It's not for believers, it's for unbelievers who have passed on, who are dead. They're going to be resurrected in a sense. They're going to stand and give an account. Listen, and in that scene here, there's no debate of guilt here, only prosecution. There's no defense or jury, just the judge. No appeal, just a sentence. That's all there is to it. Their names are not written in the book of life. They've died Apart from putting their faith in Jesus. And now their judgment, their sentence is being pronounced. And they are now cast into the lake of fire. The final and eternal place of damnation, sadly. So, that leads us into chapters 21, 22. We're going to go through this quickly. Because here we see now a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, also there was no more sea Then I, John, saw, chapter 21, verse 2, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's great. It says in in verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Here we move in now from this place where we've been for a thousand years, perfect conditions on earth, but now God is making all things new. And a new heaven, new earth, a new Jerusalem coming down now. And this is going to be just so wonderful and beautiful because God is going to be there dwelling with us there in verse 3. God himself will be with them, and be their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eye, it says in verse 4. It doesn't mean that there will be tears in heaven. It just means that, how many people interpret that, that there won't be tears in heaven. There just won't be. Right? God's not having to literally wipe away physical tears. It's just that God's going to remove those tears. There's not going to be tears in heaven. Right? And so it seems to be a beautiful place that we're with God. But what John begins to get, you know, um, what he begins to get kind of focused on or what's revealed to him is this new Jerusalem. Look at verse 16. This new Jerusalem coming down, it says that the city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth and its um, height are equal. Did I read that right? Did I miss something there? Okay, I felt like I missed something. As great as its breadth and he measured, that's right, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now notice this, this place, this New Jerusalem. It's square. It's square. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. In other words, this eternal city is a perfect cube. Remember the Holy of Holies? was a completely perfect cube perfectly cubed box the holy of holies and tabernacle was 10 by 10 by 10 cubits the holy of holies in temple was 20 by 20 by 20 cubits completely a perfect cube it makes complete sense now for this new heaven to be a representation of the very holy of holies the place that God revealed his glory the place that we're going to for all of eternity be able to sit in the presence and the glory of God imagine that So we're told the city, John's given the measurements of it, 12,000 furlongs. Now, in case you're not sure what a a furlong is, a furlong in Bible times is equal to about 600 feet. In our day, it's about 660 feet. So this city is anywhere between 1,400 to 1,500 miles at its height, its width, and its length. That equals 2,250,000 miles. Cubic miles. That's incredible. So here's what this would look like. Just putting this upon a a, a globe, you would have New Jerusalem coming down, and that would be kind of the equivalent in size to planet Earth. Now, the Earth's atmosphere extends about 600 miles. So this New Jerusalem set on the Earth today, it would extend another 900 miles into outer space. It would cover about three-quarters of the area of the United States. Henry Morris, a scientist, says there's about 80 to 100 billion people that have lived on the earth throughout human history. Let's say over time 20 billion people got saved and are in the New Jerusalem. He calculated and said if you just took a fourth of the city to place all the mansions, your mansion would be 75 acres at its length, width, and height. And you're not restricted by gravity here, so there's... All this usable space. Think about the vaulted ceilings you're going to have there, right? Now, we know that we're not going to be looking at having mansions and stuff, but that just kind of gives you a visual to look at the space that's going to be there in the new Jerusalem, where we're no longer going to be limited by physical dimension. We're going to be able to move about, and it is going to be glorious. Revelation chapter 22 continues to lay out just the beauty that we see there, Right? I mean, not to mention just the beauty that's in, in heaven. Uh, End of chapter 21 also talks about just the jewels that are going to be a part of the walls and the, and the gates and all these different things. It's just going to be so incredible to see, to witness. I think we're going to be experiencing colors we've never experienced before. But remember what Paul says, um, to the Corinthian church that, you know, I was taken up into heaven and I, Heard sounds that would be unlawful for me to share. Like, that he couldn't even, like, Uh, he wasn't caught up in just what he saw. I mean, Paul was more floored over what he heard. Think about that. I mean, what we have awaiting for us in heaven is going to be so glorious. People like to kind of, you know, not like to, but they sometimes think, oh man, heaven, what's that going to be like? Doesn't that seem like, can it get kind of boring if we're going to be there for eternity? What's it going to be like? I mean, that seems so so weird, but man, heaven is going to be glorious, my friends. Eternity is going to be exciting. Think about that. Seven years in heaven. We come back with Jesus, we get to witness the return of Christ, the end of the battle of Armageddon. We get to reign with him for a thousand years on a restored earth. And then we get to see a new heaven, a new earth come into play. I mean, eternity. Oh my word. This is going to be grand, my friends. But look at the last line of the Bible here, verse 21 of chapter 22. Simply ends... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Skip Heidsick said this, The Bible's last sentence is the perfect counterpoint to its beginning. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We have come full circle. The fall brought a curse that permeated every part of creation. Now, at the end, we have grace. Sin brought a grimace to creation, but God poured in grace. Despite all the troubles in this world, all the broken hearts and suffering... A happy ending is possible for all of us if we will receive that grace. The grace that God continues to pour out upon his creation if we will but accept it. And so we continue on to seek to be those witnesses, understanding that we're living in, you know, I believe we're living in the last days right now. What we see the Bible describing and talking about I think we are right there. And Jesus says again at the end of this book here, he says, surely I'm coming quickly. Even so, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus and let us be busy about the Father's work, sharing the good news with people, seeing and making sure that we have many people that are going to be coming with us when Jesus comes back again. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you so much that we can uh, just take this time and and an extended time here tonight to go through this important book. It's a book that's overlooked, but it's a book that reveals so much to us here, and uh, it lays out all the things that we're even seeing kind of happening right now. And Lord, may it cause us just to be filled with an even greater passion to go out into this world and proclaim the good news, and to be a witness of you, to let people know that we're never guaranteed tomorrow. Time is short. And so I pray that we will be urgent in that message, and desiring to bring as many people as we can with us, when you return, and you take us home with you again. Lord, we look forward to that day. May we keep our eyes on you, and live faithfully for you in all that we do. And we ask this now in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.